Are you conscious of your addiction? Refuse to be defined by it? Not satisfied with living your life on the surface? Are you drawn to deeper meaning and purpose? And believe that it's possible to grow through your addiction to experience true freedom? Well, welcome home. Share the journey from addiction to freedom with your host, Michael Gregory. Well, welcome to another episode of Addiction to Freedom. I'm here with Karen Thompson-Anderson, and I don't know if you recall, if you've listened to the episode which was Finding the Gold in Our Mistakes with Kat Bailey, you might recall that at the end of that, Kath suggested that we have a talk with Karen. So here she is. So it just shows that I really was listening to Kath. <laughs> anyway, just a little bit about Karen. So it has a, a long history and a lot of life experience, but more recently from 2014, Karen uh, co-founded NVC Melbourne, which is, stands for Nonviolent Communication, and, um, and she actually founded a community around that called Active Wellbeing, where she was uh, working with uh, people who wanted to make a difference in the world, but in particular to help them with a more relational approach to their own self-care while at the same and their own well-being while at the same time you know serving others. And that's often something that's missed when you try to serve others. Sometimes people forget about themselves and then crash and burn. But so that was 2014. 2019, Karen turned her attention to really focus on building the capacity in women in particular. And that led to the formation of a group called Wise Women Rising. And, uh, and I believe that's still something that's, that's growing. It's, it's for women who really want to make a difference in the world, but also at the same time want to live, I guess, a balanced and wise life. That'd be a fair introduction. So welcome, Karen. Mm, thanks, Mark. Very fair and um, delightful to be here. Thank you. So I've only really met you through Kath and I know you've known Kath for a long time and Kath is part of the Wise Wise Women Rising. So I'm sure that we'll get to learn more about that. But I'm, I'm particularly interested and I'm sure everyone listening would be interested to know a little bit more about you and like your background in the sense of particularly in relation to, you know, your journey. I know you have a story from addiction to freedom you're on that path and I'm really curious to if you want to share with us perhaps um you know the beginnings of that journey mm, yes and there's um a real appreciation that there's such an open space and safe space to have this conversation because the journey from addiction to freedom is only really getting comfortable to speak out loud more recently, certainly my own life experience, what I what I learned when I was in the the sort of difficult years of being a companion carer for someone with a serious substance dependence, both pharmaceutical and street drugs, that in that time the sort of shame and difficulty speaking about what we were what we were going through and my own journey with accompaniment meant I was also smoking and 
smoking both nicotine and marijuana as my coping behaviours because the stress and, and despair that were going on in our world at that time was really difficult to get the sort of help and support that we really needed to speak openly and without shame about what we were experiencing. So I'm really happy to be here to have this conversation. Thank you, Michael, for creating the space for this. Oh, that's, you're welcome. I'm really really appreciate your willingness to to share about it so i'm sure that there are a lot of people who will resonate with this in different ways so uh, i'm wondering if you can just help us a bit understand a bit more about the context that you're in there you mentioned that you were caring for someone who was working being challenged with their own addiction and you also had your own you would you like to tell us just give us a bit more so we could imagine what that was what that was like and 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 perhaps a bit more about obviously you were the carer but and so you've had that perspective of caring for someone with with an addiction but what was it like and what were they like at the time I'm going to go there but I'm going to take a step back just to set a little bit of context if okay you're... yeah please only because I was from now looking back I can see the influence of my early life on how I ended up in a relationship dynamic that had a lot of tragic expression in it. And it makes sense to me now that some of the addictions I was actually grappling with were things like my mum's modelling of love as a, as a self-sacrifice, so not seeking my needs and not being able to advocate for myself very well, sort of doing more flipping between over self-sacrificing, hence ending up a bit of in the martyr syndrome doing the carer work, but also flipping to like power over because my dad was military and Catholic and we had that, so I had this double whammy of like moralistic, right, wrong, good, bad influence in my early life. And I think I was like most children, sensitive to being connected with and accompanied and that my, the way that I learned in my family of origin was a bit scary. So learning itself became a bit of a challenge to me in terms of how to feel at ease about not getting my first attempt right. And that, that covered across everything. So from, from learning and studying, going to university and feeling like not quite good enough yet and not quite you know, not quite enough in terms of, yeah, how we're showing up even physically, emotionally, socially, like just having this doubt in my self-worth that had a profound impact on then what I was choosing in my world. And I think it was that profound pain that was in me about my relationship with myself ultimately that led me using substances as a soothing choice to ameliorate some of that pain and and suffering that I was experiencing quietly on the inside. I think that's really, really important just to stay here for a minute because what you're saying, tell me if I'm right here, is that you said that your your mum didn't model love. Is that what you said that well? The distinction I would make is that my mum loved me enormously and and she still does, and she models love in the way of self-sacrifice. So she will put herself 
second and other people's needs first. And it modelled for me a way of being woman and in relationship dynamic with my dad that had me not in my full sense of my power but more in a subservient, more quiet, like manipulative sort of like put on some emotional pressure when I'd like to get what I would like and, you know, those sorts of strategies that I wasn't even conscious that I was doing. It was just how I was raised and that a big part of my recovery has been learning to self-advocate and I'll get a little bit into what is nonviolent communication a bit later. That that was really a huge turning point for me to make friends again with this young woman inside me who'd been like really traumatised in my early life, not being able to speak what I needed, not knowing how, and not, not, you know, having ineffective strategies to actually even not knowing what, what ladder to climb against what wall. Like there was a sense of I don't know where I'm heading and I know that I'm supposed to be respectable. I know that I'm supposed to go and do my education and then get a good job and then marry someone decent and like there was a lot there was a history of like um, expectation from all the years with you know two beautiful parents who did their very best with me and also gave me modeling that I just have realized over the years didn't support me when things got difficult right so you in on the one side you had your mum who whose way of loving was along the lines of self-sacrifice and not in a way speaking up for her own needs in the situation. And on the other side, you had your dad who was, and I'm guessing, and just tell me if I'm right, quite definite and, and almost black and white perhaps, and certain things were right, certain things were wrong, and and was there a sense of guilt and shame around getting it wrong? Definitely. You've nailed it there. Guilt and shame were basically the emotional drivers that I took on as the ways that I would navigate whether or not I was good enough in in any moment. So guilt and shame would be like if I'd been, I don't know, as a young uni student out drinking and you know, missed a class the next day, the shame of like not being good enough, not getting up in time, not meeting expectations would mean go into a bit of a spiral of not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. So these sorts of guilt and shame stories were my program from my dad who loved me enormously and just wanted me to turn out okay, as most kids do, um, and just had tragic strategies. You know, it was about how he was parented and and interestingly, just before he died, we, we became friends after being each other's nemesis for many years. But we had um, we had such a lovely connection before he passed away. I was part of his end-of-life care. And, I, you know, I found out for the first time that he thought that his dad had been an alcoholic. And he never said that to me before. And I went, adult child of an alcoholic raising, no wonder, like, you know, like was this, this sort of aha moment that happened later on in life that I realised no wonder my dad really valued order and really valued knowing where everything was and keeping children in in some sort of manageable state and not being too confronted. And I do want to add that although stereotypically you could look at the scenario and say, oh, yeah, dad was the dominator, mum was the, the sort of trying to make keep the peace all the time by being overly accommodating. Often flip 
because my mum would get resentful. And this is what happened to me too, is that after a certain amount of placating and playing nice and being respectable, there's a certain amount of like, but I'm not getting my needs met underneath. And that's really, yeah, that's really what I had to come to terms with in, you know, both of how my parents related and, and how that played out for me. Yeah, right. So, so I can see how that context growing up in that environment kind of sent you out into the world in a way probably quite vulnerable. Thank you. The word that was coming was unprepared, uh-huh. but vulnerable nails it. And yet the bravado that I put over the top, <laughs> I'm still, I still shake my head and feel grateful that I managed to live through my 20s. I rode a motorcycle. I was like Miss Rebellion on wheels. And there's something about the way that the tragic ways that I attempted to express my longing for connection. Like I actually went to university and studied communication, which was my way of saying, how do I be understood, I think? because there was a sense that I hadn't been seen and that I hadn't really mattered in the way that my family had, had loved me. And, I, I, again, I want to stress they loved me dearly, just didn't, didn't know how to sit beside me in a mentor sort of relationship of companioning me in my learning. They was just like, get it right, punish me if I didn't. And this is very common. I mean, I know this is very common. So it's, it just became apparent to me later that what I, what I would have longed for in that situation was, yeah, mentorship, companionship, being with me in the discomfort of the learning until I could master different things. And certainly I would say now the things that I really needed to know before I left home and what I've become quite passionate about in terms of educating with my kids is these aspects of well-being that I think we're much more across these days in terms of, you know, the sort of life skills that you know, I know, for example, kids do financial, you know, personal financial management in schools these days where that wasn't a thing when I was growing up. We just did accounting and all sorts of things. We weren't, you know, we weren't savvy to the how you manage a credit card or, you know, if you do one and all those sorts of things. And and so financial well-being, my social well-being, well, yes, I was vulnerable in that sense too. I was quick to alcohol in my teens and my 20s because it gave me a little bit of social courage going into university and going out and stuff. So I was already uh, using substance then to sort of help with that vulnerability because I didn't know how else to be with it. And I certainly... I say now that I had a sense of being divorced from myself early in life, like certainly not good enough, like being in a tragic partnership with myself where I've gone, I don't like you, I don't want to hang out with you, and I'm not talking to you. So it was, like, you know, many decades later that I figured out, oh, that's probably not a strategy that's working terribly well. I really, when you were speaking there, you mentioned a couple of things, you know, you're longing for mentorship, companionship, and it brings to mind the um, the model of parenting that uh, I found very helpful where, you know, like three stages of parenting, first stage being command and control in the sense of, you know, protecting and really, you know, commanding so that they don't run out on the road, you know, they don't stick a knife in their face, you know, and really protecting in that way. And then the second stage being more of a mentorship relationship, you know, in the early teens through to adulthood. 
and and early adulthood and then after that moving to companionship and what I've noticed since I've become aware of that model is well I first noticed that that I stayed in command and control for a long time and I also noticed that for example my mum has stayed in command and control for a very long time I'd so say she's we've moved out of that now into more of a companionship we jumped I think we jumped to companionship but I see a lot of a lot of that parenting model from you know the 50s or you know spare the rod spoil the child you know and that mil- that, that comes into the military although I don't I'm sure there's a lot of mentoring goes on in the military as well but um but I think when we miss out on when we stay in command and control for so long that's the way we we get impacted by lack of connection in a way, a lack of feeling understood because mentorship is not dominating. It's more of a, it's more of a guiding, you know, a bit of tough love sometimes. It's also a lot of listening, a lot of, you know, reflecting and, and drawing out and, and that would create a lot of connection. I can see that, 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 that you were longing for that when you got into your early adulthood and you're longing for companionship. But uh, the way that you knew how to connect and be accepted was, by self-sacrificing yeah predominantly and also then the flip side of that was there was a lot of command and control that would pop out because that's what my dad had modeled as the flip side so you know here I am attempting to integrate who I am as a reflection of both my mum and dad's influences on me I could see that you know after a couple of drinks, I'd take control of the pool table. You know, like I, I had an opinion and I wanted everybody to hear it. Like it was just this exaggerated extremes in my world because this not knowing how to make friends between these two personas that that had taken up residence in me as a way of expressing my love for my parents. Like that was just you do it unconsciously as a child. But the sense that I, that I, you know, I appreciate you sharing the parenting model that you mentioned because I do think that command and control is a terrific way of describing the part of us that feels afraid and, and wants to protect in a way that's very, you know, it's control, about control. We're just getting comfortable here. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I think about that, I think about the work Marshall Rosenberg's done in supporting the clarity that I now have through his books and through his trainings about about what is power over, power under, and power with. And he talks about something called the protective use of force to pull a child from an oncoming car, you know, pull a child away from an oncoming car or, or to, yeah, to use protective use of force. But that's a way of serving life and well-being, that the orientation is about how do we how do we work in well-being with one another? How do we companion each other in well-being? And how do we then understand power and the power differential in a way that promotes mutual respect? Like I would respect if my parent pulled me out of the way of an oncoming car. I would see that as love, you know, even I might get a start. But being smacked with a ruler for whatever it was that I might have done at school or at home, that that all of a sudden wasn't okay with my parents, even if it was me just being curious, and often it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> being a curious child, like, and that's not the way you go smack on the hand. You know, that's, that's me not pulling me out of the way of harm as much as, although I suspect my parents would have thought so, that my, my experience of that was 
be afraid of learning, be afraid of expressing yourself, be afraid of standing in your truth, which is really what ultimately this journey has really been about, like coming out of, I, I do want to go back because I do want to share with some, with those who are interested about the years in with the addiction and the struggle and sort of how we got our way out. But yeah, I also want to acknowledge that these early life experiences for people, they're so foundational in forming who we think we are. And when we have this, I think you've even said it in one of our brief conversations about identity addiction and like this, who we think we are and that we'll, we'll do anything to defend it until we can't anymore because there's just, you know, there's a crisis and we can see that it's not working for us. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to sort of be guided in where you think we should go next. Uh, I'm happy to go to that, those sort of 15 years of carer and like yeah, what well that really, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that so thoroughly because I think it, it sets up a good understanding of perhaps, um, like you said, the years of associated with addiction. So, or at least, you know, the kind of more socially defined addictions. But can we go there and, and can, can you share with us, you know, what, what happened around that? Mm, yes. Don't necessarily, um, not necessarily asking for you to kind of tie it up in a bow all neatly, but more mm. about setting the scene, like what was it like? Yeah, I'm willing. There's a couple of story, little stories that come to mind. So I, I met my husband in about 2001. We both had daughters from our previous relationships and so we sort of had this mutual understanding of what it was like to be a solo parent and it was a, we were both struggling with the impacts of, you know, not being able to relate successfully in the relationships that we were having. Like he had his own history and story about his family of origin that he bought and I had mine and then the sort of mix was fantastical because, you know, we just saw each other's pain underneath but we related on top with all of the what we were struggling with and shared things in common and you know there was just there was fireworks because it was like both of us I think recognized like I look back now and I go I'm sure we both knew really that we were both really struggling didn't have financial feet on the ground didn't have sort of our family of origin dynamics resolved didn't have sort of strong social connections apart from when we enjoyed going out drinking and there was also going out uh like some of the ways that we connected were like in the joy of avoiding the shame. So in the substances and in the things that we were enjoying and the sort of mutual support and camaraderie of like being solo parents, there was this real sense of, yeah, just magic. Like, and, and I think that, that I named that because there was such a commitment to the love. Sounds like what you're, what you're saying there is that the thing that was so attractive was the connection and that's kind of what you're looking for the connection the companionship both of you and uh, in a way that was kind of um well I don't know a balm yeah that was the balm and we wouldn't give it up that's why and when so when the addiction started become problematic I didn't call a red flag and say oh we shouldn't be going down this path and and like hey we're in trouble here and hey you know I've got to find from other strategies because I was just committed to the relationship all in, you know, and so, 
you know, I remember in the early days people saying to me things like, oh, you know, why are you still in the relationship? You know, working with someone with such serious addictions, like, and I would try to explain to them that, you know, this was compassionate. I was compassionate for the struggle that I, I understood this man and his story. And I believed that me being in it with him was supporting him. And it wasn't till much, much later that I can look back and see that I was playing, playing my part in the dynamic of keeping us struggling. But I, you know, I couldn't see that then. Um, but certainly, yeah, there was an enormous sense of finding safe harbour and that we had our issues in common and we also had our coping strategies in, in common as well. So there was a real sort of mutuality, I think. And when I, when I sort of sit with what started to happen, we had a child together as well as the two daughters that we had that we brought into our family and this sense of being parents in the midst of substance dependence and unresolved trauma came a bit more than most people could handle and it certainly was for us. We weren't being able to make ground around financial well-being because money kept going out the door for things that weren't really serving well-being and were taking us backwards but we weren't prepared to admit that. There was, you know, we weren't getting any ground on navigating the emotions of being parents. We certainly weren't being companions and mentors to our young little ones at the time because we were so distressed about how everything was going. Like you said earlier about crash and burn and I went, yep, I had one of those. It was kind of like a full well-being crash and burn. And I would, yeah, I would say that was by my late 30s when the kids were still in primary school and they were like getting to school at 10 a.m. in the morning and shame, 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 you know, couldn't get to school, the kids to school, couldn't get to sleep at night. I was so anxious. I'd sit up on the computer really late and just like there was confusion and sort of a loss. At a, I was at a loss. Like how do I dig myself out of this? Like I think I said to you, in terms of well-being, I was in the well and I was right at the bottom and I was trying to get myself back up. But every time I didn't have the resilience or the muscles emotionally or strategically to know what to do to push myself up and out. Yeah, that was that was very painful. And and we'd start to argue, of course, about what the best strategies were. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like both of you were trying to do your best and both of you really valued the connection that you had. And but in the midst of it, you know, there was addiction that was draining the finances. And how was it affecting other things? Oh, yeah, gosh. I would say that I, I have because I've become a bit of a storyteller in women's storytelling circles and I tell the story of being socially isolated for that period. And it was because my parents and my, you know, my family, my sister and family of origin, they, they'd all like got, it's too hard. We don't know how to be with you and we don't know how to put up with this behaviors and in fact they'd put us up temporarily because we were so struggling with housing and then they evicted us because we we couldn't sustain the rent the way they were expecting and and they pushed us out because that was too much trauma for them to look at and they just didn't know how to be with it so 
you know, it was we were getting triggered and re-traumatized on a regular basis because we were scrabbling around in the in the midst of our despair and and not knowing what to do. And because we both had these temper issue, like he'd have a temper if he wasn't being able to medicate in the way he wanted, and I'd have a temper about how he was medicating and causing our finances to collapse. And so this the struggle for power, I just exaggerated the two parts in myself, which was I just externalised my husband as my dad and me as my mum and then me flipping in resentment about I just saw the pattern. Like it became very clear I was caught in the same over-sacrifice, resent and get angry cycle of self-abuse because I stayed in it as a way of affirming this old pattern in my childhood that it just wouldn't, it wouldn't resolve itself in, you know, I couldn't figure out how to, how to get through it. Yeah. So there, it sounds like there was um, a period where the connection, which was the attraction in the beginning and the, the real pleasure and, you know, like safe Harbor kind of started to not, you know, dissipate in the face of all the, these other things. It sounds like, you know, he was trying to cope with his situation, whatever that really was internally in, with his addiction. And then on your side, how did your addiction kind of come about in, in all of that? Yeah, it was really like in the beginning it was about companionship really. like All right, just to be included and do something together. You know, it's like it was part yeah. of what we had in common then. I've mean, yeah. been smoking since I was 16 and I'd, I'd remember that was the first one that had really ruffled the feathers at home because I'd been sprung having cigarettes in a, in a, in the backyard with friends and um, at a party that I got too out of hand and my dad just sent everyone home. So it was just like, you're busted and you're grounded for three months or however long it was. That was, you know, I was already well entrenched with my nicotine addiction by this stage. And on top, I'd not been managing my alcohol very well, although that wasn't really um, something that I felt craving for. It was that it was around and I was using that one um, for ease. But then as, you know, things got more challenging, I became quite, had quite a sort of admiration for marijuana in the way that I could flip from feeling really anxious to feeling really calm. And I really, I appreciated the substance for that so much. But then as I, as my life became more exaggerated in terms of difficulty, I noticed that it didn't give me the same effect. And what was happening was I'd, I'd spiral into panic when I'd use, and then I'd not feel like I had anywhere to go. And I dabbled in some of the substances that my husband was into, but I never really, it just never really stuck with me. And something about being a mother that just held me, held me accountable to looking for other strategies because though I wanted the connection um, with my husband so very much, I just couldn't find my way to seeing us both go down the drain in my languaging of it. Um, I, needed, I needed to find a way out and and I think it was that intense willingness to reclaim my life for my kids that actually helped drive reclamation, I suppose. Well, that's interesting because it, it sounds like, you know, that you wanted to prolong the connection that you had initially with your husband 
and and you had your own relationship with you know alcohol and cigarettes and but and uh, and, and marijuana and uh, and then you know you dabbled with you know what he was into but that your connection with your kids the, the theme of connection with your comes up again with your kids actually you could see that there was a cost of losing or lessening the connection with your kids if you tried to connect with him in this way with you know, substances so you didn't fully go down that rabbit hole which is a bit of a saving grace really in a way but it sounds like you were constantly searching for connection yeah really and you know that's really become a foundation to all the work that I do now is quality of connection and that I've become really clear that how I how I navigated my way out was starting to see my longing for connection and that happened very serendipitously. I saw in a school newsletter that there was a trainer in this language skills for nonviolent communication and I thought, well, I should go and do that so I can fix my husband. <laughs> <laughs> not not I should go and do that and learn how to be an advocate for myself, my own feelings and needs, just like I could go learn that and fix somebody with that. And really, that's the strategy. That's why we were getting caught up in strategies with each other was we were constantly trying to fix the problems. And sometimes he was the problem, sometimes I was the problem, sometimes finances were the problem, but we're always or, or some, what, something else was the problem, like a, a friend that had decided it was too much to be friends with us or whatever it was. Like we, we'd have a problem that would be sitting in the middle of what was happening in our world. So our orientation was not well-being in the middle. And so all of our attention and all of our affirming was things are wrong, things are bad, we've got problems. So that meant before I had any skills, all we would do would be argue about which strategies and what was needing to be fixed first. That was just in a mess of strategies and strategies that we would try and wouldn't work and we'd go round and round. And this is part of what I now have an enormous compassion for is that when there's this much distress, there's mental health challenge, it, there sort of becomes like a barrier to clarity because in the physiology, there's fright and flight happening constantly. Like every day for me was a full flight panic. To actually recognise that when I was turning up as my husband's carer to a service for a rehab request or a new medication script or trying to find new strategies for the addiction but also trying to find new strategies for whatever our latest challenge was, like facing bankruptcy, dealing with like what, what we were going to do with the financial situation, all, all of the things that went on was that trying to face it from a physiological space of fight flight was impossible. Like it was just it was a challenge that I only came to see later it was like, of course, with compassion. I had so much trouble trying to get a thought to straight to solve the issues I was facing. Yeah, because um, in fight or flight, we know that the blood goes to the hindbrain, and that's not com that's complex thinking does not occur there. It's binary thinking of either run away to get away from the danger or fight to destroy the danger. 
and all the complex thinking of the frontal cortex is kind of dis- not disabled, but it's, di- it's diminished. And then there's this panicky feeling and fear and anxiety in the body. And, and that is a horrible, horrible way to exist day after day after day when particularly you're in, you know, you're in, you've got your children and then you've got the external world that you're trying to face as well. And that must have been a very, very, very trying time, very challenging. And, and what I'm hearing, is it right to say that the, when you, the nonviolent communication was kind of your thread that you held on to that led you away from, from that situation? Is that right? I would say that it was the beginning of my awakening, certainly, in terms okay. of, you know, I was, I was basically having a fight with everyone and everything in my in my world. At that point, things had become so desperate. I was fighting with myself within my family, with my family of origin. I was fighting with the system. I had like a, chip, a massive chip on my shoulder about injustice and how the system wasn't serving us and helping us fix this and that we were being treated by, I can remember thinking, oh, we're being treated by people who are such do-gooders but they don't really understand and they're doing it to us they're not doing it with us like they're not standing beside us in the in the like maybe it's just a competency issue like if someone had sat down to me and gone you know it seems like if we could support you with a couple of things around getting your finances in order that might help lessen the stress a bit you know like could we maybe companion you with some sessions on like how to navigate where you find yourself but I had needed a very safe place to be able to open the books transparently about and I in, about the financial situation in, and one of the things that I ended up doing was being able to build a community where I could do that and where I could have women sit beside me and companion me which has been a part of the, the healing journey which I can move to shortly but I really had a chip on my shoulder about injustice and it's interesting because what I really wanted was trust And so I was just really mad that there was nowhere in the world that I could trust and ultimately because I hadn't learned how to trust myself from a really young age, I was looking outside of myself for that trust. I was still looking everywhere for it and, you know, finding the proof in the world and in everything else that it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Yeah, right. So you you really ended up in quite an isolated space place when what you're really looking for was um connection it's a you know how they say um, be careful what you wish for and (laughs) it works in reverse so it's like be careful what you're afraid of because that's a wish a negative wish and so i was wishing so hard for connection but instead of wishing directly for connection i was wishing in the other direction of like i don't want to be disconnected that is a very powerful wish. I don't want to be disconnected. I don't want things to yeah. be bad. I don't want things like that's that was my whole orientation. So nonviolent communication and, and I will say too, like I spent three years in a spiritual community. I was looking for connection and went, okay, I, I need to reclaim my life. What am I going to do? I came across, it was a flyer in the letterbox again. Um, things had to come right into my house to be able to be in front of me. But um yeah, I went to this um, meditation school and I was chanting and meditating and crying most days and 
and actually I did things like prayers for ancestors and, and like just did this whole reboot on my sense of where trust lived. And then nonviolent communication came along a, a couple of years after I'd started that and it actually began to inform me about how I could articulate that trust because what would happen, I'd get in this beautiful meditative state on the meditation cushion and then I'd walk outside and use my old language and <laughs> everything had just crashed. So it was like yeah. I could cultivate the state in my body yeah. of starting to feel what peace was like but I didn't know how to advocate for peace in my relationships. So everything yeah. looked like crap, but I, yeah. could, I could retreat within, which I think a lot of people also find as a solution is like finding that meditation place of like, oh, this is nice, this is soothing, this is the place where, you know, I was trying to reach with drugs, I think I'll stay here. Like, and yeah. that didn't work for me. I had kids to raise and I had, you know, I still had a, host of well-being issues I needed to attend to. I needed to be yeah. present. I needed to be clear-minded. But I needed to have a, a reboot on my relational well-being as well as my internal well-being. So it sounds like came in. sounds like you had you started to uh, get connection within yourself. Thank you, yes. That's, that was really the beginning and... It wasn't so much about the modality that I was doing, but it was just one pathway that took me into my inner space and gave me a sense of things could be different in here. So the questioning and like I didn't even know how to be with the sort of spaciousness that I could find inside myself. I didn't know how to speak to myself with myself. Like there was just it was all totally new territory, but that creating the space certainly meant that when things were happening, I wasn't triggering as fast. I'd still trigger, but I'd have that, just that little bit more. Buffer. And this is when I was talking about being in the bottom of the well and trying to work out what muscles I needed to get myself out. One of them was that presence, was an ability to see the distinction between the stimulus that happened and then what was happening as a response in my body. And before I spoke, trying to interrupt and stop put a pause on the what would normally be my reaction and try to like just be mindful, like what what could I do to respond to this instead of doing what I would normally. So that was really an important first step, having that little bit more space. Sounds like your your perception of yourself started to expand inwardly in the sense that prior to that the attempted solutions or to connection were around external in terms of relationship, other people, addictions, and but then those things weren't necessarily giving you that in a sustainable way, let's say, maybe temporarily, but you, you then started to see that there's more to you. I'm looking for trust in all the wrong places. You know, like one of my 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 longing for the connection and the and the love was was that my belief was it's outside of me. I needed to connect with other people to have that connection happen. That my what I call the locus of trust was sitting with in other people's hands. So I had to do whatever dance I had to do to manipulate a situation to be able to have that person love me. Then I was lovable or I had to somehow work the system so that they would 
finally, you know, be able to make create a payment that would work and that I could, uh, you know, sort out that I could survive on, you know, and just all the ways that I would mold and shape and sort of squish myself and reorient myself a bit chameleon-like to try to find that trust and love as if something that I needed to win from outside of me. And the transition began to, when I began to see that, yeah, it actually is, it's that I've been very busy outside and I haven't really spent very much time at home and literally with myself. And I hadn't had to, I hadn't been educated to. I, um, I have this sense that when I made other people responsible for my trust, I lived in total anxiety underneath. And when I said to start to understand that my the only person I could really 100% really trust would be myself if I was in full connection with myself, is that I could see and feel and sense what was my trust, what was my truth, and that would give me my trust, my sense of trust, that I couldn't. I could, what I could do though was go into other in other relationships with more willingness to trust and also willingness to see the behaviour as a tragic expression of what was really happening underneath in terms of their longings. So not making it so much about me if someone yelled at me, which happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So someone yeah. would yell at me and I'd be like, okay, quick self-empathy check. How am I about that? Well, it's disappointing and upsetting that they're yelling, but I really, and I really need some care and safety. But if I just breathe for a minute, I can cultivate my own sense of care and safety. And maybe in that, within a minute or two, I could come back to the person who was yelling and say, are you just really needing my support right now? Yes, or whatever it is that was, you know, whatever my guess was, if I was wrong, they would then enlighten me. But but the the ability to start to relate from what I would say was my back foot before, which was always on guard, always attempting to make it all right and fix it and make peace and, you know, like try to uh, ameliorate tragedy everywhere, was to actually start to step, lean into this self-advocacy place of like, hmm, I'm going to look after myself and then I'm going to advocate, but I'm also going to hear with a bit more compassion what's going on over there and mm-hmm. hear behind what they're saying because yeah. if I can take myself as an example, I can tell that I often speak things the way I was trained to as a I want the dishes done, so I'll go down and go, hey, you, you haven't done the dishes instead of, you know, what I'd really like is support. And when I noticed the dishes in the sink, I feel a bit disappointed because my understanding was that we made an agreement, it was your turn or whatever, that being able to advocate is a totally different experience to being able to, using my old patterns to either dominate or submit and just go, oh, the dishes are in the sink again, poor me, victim, can't do anything, I'll just go and do them myself. Like there's, there's this shift of perception and I, you know, I know people talk about it in addiction recovery often about the victimhood and the and the you know perpetrator and victim and like trying to break that cycle in ourselves. But and essentially that's what I'm talking about. But there's this there's this place in the in the sort of tension in the middle where we're relating and we're standing in more more genuine expression of us of ourselves over here instead of making 
making it about the other person doing what we want to be okay. So you doing the dishes would actually make me happy. That's the old strategy. Me owning how I feel about the dishes not being done mm, mm. and getting a breath about that and actually being able to share that with you but not from a place of blame, just from a place of request, which is a completely different energy because it says it's all right if you say no. I, if it's a request genuinely, then I'm going to be okay if you say no. I'm going to... Then I'm going to breathe and decide whether I'm going to do them now, or maybe do them later, or maybe we can all deal with them in the sink for now. Yeah, because you, you know, when you say you, you're not all tied up with the external circumstance happening. Like your you, in inverted commas, doesn't become diminished by the external context not being, you know, not something that was expected. Yeah. yeah. And in order for that to occur, Obviously, there needs to be more familiarity with with more of you in the sense of you're obviously more than the just the external context because you can be, you know, for you to be able to be okay regardless of the external context means that there's the you who is the you, let's say, is actually more than that. And it sounds like you started to get more of a familiarity with the freedom of of that because once you once you're not so immersed in the flow of phenomena the external context once you once you get more freedom from that in a sense to, that you can be okay regardless of what's going on here and is that is that something that has been happening for you you am i reading that correctly or yes with a caveat because when I spoke about spiritual, you know, the spiritual enlightenment, sort of how joyful it was to find meditation and my own bliss, that the sense I had was that still that the world didn't understand me and that actually spiritual bypassing was a bit <laughs> what I was doing. like it was easier to be there than it was to be in the realms of navigating with presence what was still happening in my world. And I think there's um. I think this is what I mean by that sort of gentle relational tension between not only the people in my world but the ways that I'd been handling my the aspects of my well-being. So I realised, oh, it seems that I'm attempting to fix and control my finances from a very dominate, dominating or submitting place. Oh, that looks familiar, that pattern. Like, oh, that's actually something I've brought from my relationship world into now how I relate with other things in my world and it was sort of like an epiphany of like oh how I relate is going to impact my well-being like how I relate with the things that I've sort of in meditation terms drifting past me like clouds like it might be that my finances need some attention oh now I could go Oh, peace be my finances. <laughs> okay, I need to bring some mindful attention over there. Yeah. Because the mind is trying to serve us and it will bring us the things that are for our attention. But how we respond to that is how, well, how are we programmed to respond to that? I was certainly doing all the things that I'd been trained and remembering too that. I hadn't been really companioned in like and given here's the map of well-being, here's what you 
attempting to work towards. You want to achieve some sort of financial stability in this direction and here's some tools and skills. And you want to go in this direction socially and have some relational skills and here's some skills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just hadn't been mapped for me. I had to sort of figure that out. Yeah, it sounds like you've um, you've you've really come on a long journey because I I'm kind of curious to know now. I know we're kind of getting close to time, but I really would love to know like if we can kind of fast forward to where are you now in the sense of more more in relation to what we, the themes we were talking about, you know, in terms of connection. If we could maybe talk about where are you now in in, in relation to connection let's say, with others and also with yourself. And I'd also like to ask if that's relevant to you, what do you see as yourself? What is yourself to you in in your experience, understanding? So I can fast forward for the fact that the things that I just started to discover that I needed because with nonviolent communication I was able to tune into what I was actually needing. It was actually finding ways of being with my grief first and foremost because what comes up behind shame is grief and behind, yeah, behind fear and shame and anger and all those things, most often grief and fear of being seen for being incompetent. That was my thing. Like I was attempting to be, look like I had it all together but on underneath I was struggling and that there was just some simple competencies I needed, but I was too ashamed to do anything about those. I was hiding them from myself. So a lot of the transition was like gently, gently learning how to be with my grief of maybe not having been educated the way I would have liked or mentored the way I would have liked in all of my aspects of well-being, relating and finances and the different things, you know, even how to create time and space to be with myself. You know, I hadn't, I didn't know how to do that. So, you know, even just learning how to do meditation to have create time and space for myself was an important skill. So gently being a learner again in a way that was more compassionate. So nonviolent communication gave me self-empathy and a way of being compassionate for me being a learner again and not shaming myself at every turn and seeing myself shaming myself at every turn in the beginning and seeing myself trying to push myself up and at least giving myself some encouragement instead of like you didn't do it good enough today you didn't get there today like you didn't fix it all today like to just ask that voice that had been trying to protect me all my life to that we could find another use for that voice in encouragement and that the sense of self became like a more like a how can I be life-serving and collaborative with where I find myself? That was the essence of the question is like how can I be life-serving in, in essence in service to well-being and find collaboration within myself and my true yeses and my true noes like being really clear what I'm needing and like being able to ask for it if that's, you know, and not expecting people to be strategies. That's really important. Like come to a friend and say, I'm really needing support with someone holding my hand while I get these emails out because I'm just needing some company and some, and otherwise I'm going to keep avoiding these emails that I need to do, for example. And 
And I go, hmm, I actually just need some company or support so I can maybe call a friend and be chatting on the phone while I get my emails done. But knowing that that's what I'm needing has helped me tune into like what's my yes, what's my no, what's here for me, what's arising is a common thing that I'll say like when we check in for our meetings with friends, it'll be like, hmm, what's alive in you? Like what's, what's coming up for you? What's here? And it might be a thought. It might be a feeling state that I'm more tuned into. It could be what I'm needing. So these are skills from nonviolent communication that I found so life-transforming that I went and became a founder with a couple of friends in NBC Melbourne. So fast forward to 2014 because we're nearly out of time. I hear that. Yeah, I had learned a lot about myself from the processes of empathy that I would sit in little triads and dyads and we'd talk and we'd learn and I'd go home and curl up and try and integrate it all. And and over time and being consistent with it, it actually allowed for change. Like I really got to the point of of finding change within myself because there was just, you know, an, a new sense of who me was me was starting to have some self-respect again me was starting to have some patience and compassion for other people and their struggles because I could see it through my own experiences and I was starting to realize that actually more than MVC because in the community that I built with my colleagues in nonviolent communication Melbourne I could see that we could build this incredible community that had NVC at its as a practice, and so that social, like our social well-being, could start to be looked after. And I could see that, oh, if I, you know, I was starting to practice at home, and just a quick sidestep. When I first started to bring nonviolent communication to my household, I was, I were particularly remember sh- attempting to share with my my husband or my son, particularly like. He'd sit on the computer, my son, and I'd say something like, originally I'd say, Jet, it's time for dinner, come up to the table. And I'd be like, come on, it's time, you got to come up now. There's command and control. Yeah, command and control. <laughs> and he'd never, he'd never come. And in the end, I'd just gone submissive and let him sit at the computer. And he is yeah, right. <laughs> mental. And then in, as I learned MVC, I'd go across to him and I'd say, you know, I just feel disappointed because I'd really love some company to have my dinner. And like, I just, my language was changing. And yeah, I can see the compassion in that because you were genuinely just telling him that you were missing him and you wanted his companionship and and uh, he probably heard that, did he? Yeah, he did, but I didn't lean on it too heavy so it wasn't guilty-provoking. Yeah. It was just like this is how it is for me, no um, demand on you. And at the beginning yeah. he was like, yes, love it. <laughs> like I'll just let mum say whatever she wants. I can still keep doing what I want, like of course. Yeah. But as over time, when it really mattered to him, I was showing up with that same empathy and languaging about ability that I hadn't had before. And, and so over time he came to trust that this is actually who I was becoming, not just me trying to put on language that was going to be my new manipulation strategy, which yeah. I think is the, the um, testament to the work is that committing to it and actually imagining it over time in the relationships that may have been difficult because of communication in the past and unhelpful strategies of connection, that they can be reclaimed. And certainly that's been my experience in my family now. So that communication is central 
to whether or not we can see and and know have have a sense of each other really see and know yeah. what the feelings and needs are and give each other sort of a respectful autonomy about who they who each other really is like how we're really and so there's a freedom in that completely yeah so where what happened with the addictions then oh well I stopped with the marijuana and the drinking years and years ago um I think because I just needed a clear head and I needed to be able to function when my family was very little was that at a point where you were getting more space internally starting to wake up yes and and so so you're realizing that that wasn't serving you but you it wasn't like leaving a vacancy you already had kind of what you were looking for growing within you is that right yes yes because of that was starting to fill in the spaces and I was also being able to be more comfortable with discomfort so I had a discomfort you know an uncomfortable feeling I was getting more resilience and capacity with uncomfortable feelings. So I wasn't racing straight away to find a comfort fix outside of myself. I was like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. Let's find out what that's about. Yeah, right. So you're increasing your self-awareness. Yeah. And then I can see how the communication is an extension of that. Yeah. As a way of interacting with yourself and with others. And just... Quickly, one last question, because I, I don't want to keep us too long, is um, where do you see your path to freedom now? How do you see that now? Now you've got all these skills and you don't have your old old substance addictions. And bearing in mind, you know, I guess I'm going to weave in here my focus on addictions, not just being substance addictions, but being ways of being, ways of operating that seem to be habitual and detrimental you know like for example the ultimate one i would love to you know always come back to because it includes us all or at least it includes me is my addiction to myself and and realizing that as that diminishes so much more freedom arises and the ability to connect with others and even just be content in whatever environment happens so i'm just wondering just as a Broad question, how do you see your freedom, your your path to freedom from here? Thanks. I love your description of yours. For me, it's like being a conduit to the life that lives within. Like there's a sense that the more I'm in service to the life that wants to be lived through me, and that's how I would describe it, is being in harmony with the life that wants to be lived through me. So being curious, like what does me want today? That's not like I am in a like going to do today in a very dominating way it's like hmm curiosity and you know being able to build a curiosity muscle to the point where there's a intuitive flow between myself and what my my environment's showing me and so I'm getting a pretty clear feedback happening too about like what's is there still a yes there is there not like you know being able to have that sense of um yeah, I would say intuition, but it's more like just a deep listening to what is life wanting in this moment. Um, even finding myself being drawn to things I can't explain to you about, okay, I have to go this way today. Like, why? Well, I can't tell you, but that's <laughs> what's happening. My life's going in that, you know, wants to go. And I'll, I'll know later, but I won't know at the time. So trusting, trusting the unknown 
about that, like being more willing to be playful with with that unknown and not knowing and even not knowing what self is and being all right with that, having a sense that we are given this sort of individual consciousness experience as a way of knowing what it is to be consciousness, what it is to be alive, and we're also given social context to be this beautiful learning university of like what aspects of yourself have you not seen yet and befriended. And so one of the recent webinars I ran for the Wise Women Rising in the retreat we did recently was um, about this relational understanding for me now about what is well-being and how we can we relate with everything, like all of our challenges, all of our, our relationship issues. And so for me the, that's a big part of the work I do now is, is coaching and supporting and being alongside as a companion and a friend and um, sometimes a mentor because it's, it's often, very often that the answers, the truth are within the other person. I actually, it's more about the listening and the supporting and the seeing of the person as the person they're becoming and affirming the person they're becoming that actually has them find their own awareness and truth and not a lot of mentorship is needed. Like it's not about telling, which is is a relief. So that becoming, shifting from trying to be an expert to a radical, transparent learner, that's <laughs> big deal. It's beautiful. I like that. Yeah, well, I can really, just reflecting on, on your your journey here, I mean, from the kind of, in a way, almost, like you said, unprepared, kind of innocent you know, vulnerable young woman thrust out into the world with these self-sacrificing, you know, and, and like and dominating sides, which are in a way two polarities, really. You know, and you've weaved your way through. You know, I mean, the, through the difficulties that trying to operate with those those ways of being manifested. You know, and you know, and trying all sorts of things, relationships, addiction, and um, and then finding some real wisdom in yourself and being able to now have a framework to work with others and yourself through through communication to the point now where you're actually supporting and being alongside others. And there's a wonderful journey. So it's, a, it's really, um, I really am inspired by your story. So I really thank you for being part of part of this conversation and I'm sure that others will um, uh, will benefit in many ways as well so appreciate you being on the uh, on the journey to addic- from addiction to freedom and sharing that with me thanks Mark it's been lovely to be here yeah all right well um, I'll just say goodbye to you and uh, and to everyone and um, look forward to catching up next time bye for now